Let us pray. I'm most eternal and everlasting Father, King of kings, Lord of lords, faithful God, majestic in all your ways. We can't even fathom the death of your love for us. You're such a great God that we even stand in awe that you will allow us to call you your Father. Because your Son, Jesus Christ, has made that possible. What a privilege, what an honor that we are called your children. When this does not yet appear, but we will be, but you assured us that as your Son is, so we shall be. So, Heavenly Father, we know that we are in a tumultuous times. We see the instability of our time because the world as a whole has turned their back on you. Do not care that you remain faithful to those who seek you. So we have gathered this morning in obedience to your instruction that we should do so. Especially as we see the evil days drawing which we know we are in. So we pray now that God the Holy Spirit, a perfect communicator, will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. Still in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. I, begin, I will begin reading at verse 25. It is, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising a question of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal, and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another man, another's conscience? If I take a part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. Now let me refresh your mind regarding the message of 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. That we have been considering, it is this. Use your freedom in Christ in such a way to advance the spiritual needs of others. Now this message we have started will be expounded by centering on three responsibilities that you have as a believer pertaining to the concept 
of the freedom you have in Christ. Given in this particular passage that we're studying. So we have considered the first, which is that you should understand that not everything you have right to do helps others spiritually, but you are required to seek the good of others. Now we also indicated that this responsibility involves two parts or two elements. The first part is understanding that nothing uh, that not everything you have right to do helps others spiritually. The second part of the uh, second part or element is that you are required to seek the good of others. So we continue now with the second responsibility that you have as a believer in Christ about your freedom in Christ. So a second responsibility you have as a believer, pertaining the concept of freedom you have is this. You should understand that your use of your freedom is not absolute. So, need to be, need to adjust its application. Again, you should understand that your use of your freedom is not absolute. So, need to adjust its application. Now, this responsibility demands that you know, that you should know when to use your freedom in Christ and when not to use it. So, we consider first when to use your freedom in Christ in keeping with what the Holy Spirit gave through Apostle Paul in the passage of our study. So you should use your freedom in Christ when enjoying God's provisions that in ordinary use are not in and of themselves sinful and do not impact your testimony before unbelievers because you recognize that God created all things in the planet. Now there are three elements to this principle, which again the principle is that you should use your freedom in Christ when enjoying God's provisions that in ordinary use are not in, of, uh, in and of themselves sinful and do not impact your testimony before unbelievers because you recognize that God created all things in this planet. So the, with this principle, we, there are three elements to it. And that, the three elements are what we will uh, look at in order to see what this, uh, to expand on this principle. A first element of when to use a believer's freedom in Christ involves a situation when what a person enjoys is not sinful in ordinary usage. Whenever you enjoy something that is not sinful in its ordinary usage. Now this element is derived from the instruction of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 25 when it says, Eat anything sold 
in the meat market. Now the command eat here is given in the Greek in what is known as present tense. The implication here is probably that the apostle instructs the Corinthian believers to continue to eat meat from the meat market as they had been doing prior to their conversion. In other words, the Corinthians ate meat from the meat market and so the apostle implies that there's no need to discontinue that practice in that command when he says, eat anything sold in the meat market. Now we maintain that the instruction here is a generalized one to all Christians but in our context is to all Corinthian believers regardless of whether they are the strong or the weak spiritually. Now the basis of this generalization is that the Greek command translate it in the NIV is in the plural in the Greek. Something that we cannot easily determine from the English translation. There's no way you know it's in the plural. Now the implication of the plural though is that the apostle is addressing his command not to a few but to all believers who have freedom in Christ. Now mid market and current at the time of writing of this epistle was a shop where meat and poultry including perhaps fish and other food items were sold. Apparently, the meat supplied to a such shop will include those slaughtered in the shop or elsewhere and those slaughtered in the idol temples by pagan priests. Now, ordinarily, there's nothing wrong with eating meat in its ordinary use. Nothing wrong with it. That's the point we're making in its ordinary use. Now, it is true that under the Levitical priesthood, the Israelites were restricted to the kind of meat they should eat. But with the coming of Christ, such restrictions were lifted, as implied in the uh, commentary of the Holy Spirit recorded in Mark chapter 7, verse 19. Mark chapter 7 verse 19. May we know there, are, there were a lot of things the Lord told Israel, especially in Leviticus 11, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat. And truly speaking, although we have advanced so much today, that through medical advancement, they have treated this food in certain way. For example, pork was one of them they shouldn't eat. However, today, you know, they do all this curing. Of course, in my judgment, when they cure it, there's too much salt, which is not good for you. And that causes another problem too. But the Israelite God said, just don't eat it. Because there are so much things about uh, pork that you can verify. Get a raw one. Get something like lamb caught on spray on, on the raw meat and see what it looks, what it looks like. 
So when God told him, don't do that, he was protecting their health. But that doesn't have to do with going to heaven or hell. He's protecting their health. And the same way I said to all of us, when we talk about certain things, about food and so on, it's not that it's sinful, it's to protect your health. What am I meaning is this. While we are on this planet, we should be as healthy as we can. We should enjoy ourselves on this planet. Now, it doesn't mean that if you want to eat yourself to death, that you're going to go to hell. It doesn't mean that. It just means you'll be suffering while here. So why go through that? So that's why we have to be careful in what we eat. Having said all that, my point is, is what you eat is not sinful. It doesn't matter really what it is, as, it's, as, it's, as long as it's food. All because of this passage in Mark 7.19 when it says, For it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. Now this is the Lord saying something. That sometimes when you read these things, kind of ponder a little bit. Look at what he says. He says. It does not go into his heart. The food does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. I mean, we know today, if you eat food, it goes to your heart. Somewhere, somehow. Carried by the blood and whatever. It goes to your heart. So, when it, that means heart here is not a physical thing. It's talking about the spiritual component of us. So, he says, it goes into his heart, but uh, does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. And then out of his body. Look at the thing I'm concerned with. It's that commentary. Say, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. All foods. Bearing in mind that the Jews were restricted. But after this, no more. Now, so the commentary of the Holy Spirit in this passage in Mark is given differently by the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 14, verse 14. Now, while I'm making this comment on the, on the issue of food here, the, the thing is, while you can eat everything, and there is really no, nothing that tells us in the New Testament that when God said to Israel, don't eat fat, that that has changed. There's nothing in it. He told them, eat fat, don't eat blood. And in the New Testament, we saw those two things, I mean, the blood aspect re-emphasized, which means that the fat hasn't been changed. And uh, we, worry, we wonder how, many, how much we get into trouble health-wise because we just load our food with fat. So he says, as one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for, for him it is unclean. Doesn't, in ordinary use, if a believer walked into a meat market or shop and bought meat, there will be nothing wrong with that. However, things are not always simple. So there is a qualification to the meat that one purchased in the meat market and current that will get to shortly. Meanwhile, we insist that there is nothing wrong in ordinary usage of one buying meat in meat shop 
or in a butcher's shop and going home to cook and eat it since there's nothing sinful about eating meat sold in such a place. Now the example the apostle used to demonstrate this principle that we're considering is meat sold in the market in Corinth. And so we may wonder, how does this apply to us today? Well, there are believers who live in other parts of the world that their situation will parallel what's obtained in Corinth. But for most believers, there is nothing to be concerned about meat that is offered in the butcher's shop or in the grocery stores. For most believers. Now this being the case, one may wonder how this principle of freedom or use of freedom for food applies to a person. So let me use something that causes problem for some believers in this country. The example is that of wine. That some believers enjoy without being drunk. So a believer could use his or her freedom in Christ to purchase wine in, a, in liquor stores, for example. And nothing would be wrong with that since wine in its ordinary usage is not a sin. However, as we will note later, using the same example of purchasing wine to show that it could be wrong to do so under certain conditions. So the point is really that a believer has freedom in, in Christ to enjoy any of God's provisions for our living on this planet. That is, of course, in his normal usage, that is not sinful. Hence then the first element of this, of the first principle that we're dealing with, when a believer should use his or her freedom in Christ, is when what a person enjoys is not sinful in ordinary usage. Whenever, whatever you enjoy, that in of itself is not sinful. At that point, your freedom is not in jeopardy, so to say. So this brings us to the second element. The second element of when to use believers' freedom in Christ involves a situation when the believer's testimony is not impacted by the exercise of such freedom. Before I elaborate on that, I have said many times from this pulpit that one of the most important things that you have as a believer is your personal testimony in Christ. Nothing is greater than that on this planet. But most of all, it doesn't really well, don't think about it. Nothing is as important as your testimony. That is one of the most important things that you have on this planet. Your testimony about Christ. And that is why when I say it is important to recognize that whatever situation where that uh, testimony is not imp- impacted, then that's what we're saying is correct. So we mean then that when your action does not cause an unbeliever or even a fellow believer to question your claim of faith in Christ, 
then it is appropriate to use your freedom in Christ. That was whatever you do. If it doesn't cause another believer to say, huh, I thought he's a Christian. Or I thought she's a Christian. Or something to that, or even an unbeliever to say, oh, I thought he or she claims to be a Christian. But you're doing this, or doing whatever it is. So when that is the situation, then you have to be careful. So that's what we mean that when your action does not cause an unbeliever or even a fellow believer to question your claim in, of faith in Christ, then it is appropriate to use your freedom in Christ. Now this element is derived from the verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 25 that we're studying. Look at that uh, verbal phrase. It says, without raising questions of conscience. Now the expression, raising questions, is translated from a Greek uh, word that may mean to examine, to examine, in the sense of conducting a judicial hearing. So it means to hear a case. As Pilate used it to describe his judicial investigation regarding the accusation of the Jews against Jesus Christ as narrated in Luke chapter 23 verse 14. Luke 23 verse 14. Luke chapter 23 verse 14. It is, and said to them, you brought, you brought me, this man, as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and have found no basis for your charges against him. So here, the word examine is translated from a Greek word, anakrino, anakrino. Now the word may mean to engage in careful study of a question. In other words, to question or to examine. As it is used to describe the activities of the Bereans who examine the scripture after Apostle Paul preached in their city as described in Acts chapter 17 verse 11. Now, I don't know that that's why those who founded this church, I don't know if that's the basis by which they named the church. This passage, I don't know. Maybe. But if it is, then you have to answer the question, are you keeping to the spirit of it? Because it requires studying, and this is what I'm going to comment on here. Because it says, now the Darians were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Why? Look at the reason. For they received the, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, I, I can't emphasize this enough and I will keep doing that. If you think that you can sit here in one hour or two hours and you understand everything I've thought, you are in delusional. 
You're delusional. You can't do that. It's impossible. You can't. So you must go home. So if you only hear me once, I guarantee you, you haven't got it. You've got to go home and go back and go back and go back. So as to grasp it, because I keep trying to remind people, how can you, truthfully, in two hours get what it takes me 30 hours to study? How will that happen? I don't think any human being is that sharp. So if you only hear me once, you don't get it. You're not really getting it. And this is an example of it. Look at what it says here. It says, look at again, look at what it says. For they receive the message with great eagerness and examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. In other words, I know some of you, I don't, I'm not, I'm a realistic person, practical person. Some of you, many things I would think you say, well, he's wrong. I know that. Go home and go over and over and over the passages and what I explained. And let the Holy Spirit deal with you. And at that point then you can say, yeah, he's wrong or something like that. But not until you do that, don't, don't say, oh, I don't believe that, I don't buy that. So here is what the what say the Berians apart. That's why I say I hope if that's the basis for the name of this church, Berian Bible Church, that you are keeping to the spirit, which is that you go home, examine, and to see whether what you are taught is correct according to the scripture. And I don't know how much to how to elaborate it. I have never been. It's never been. It's not me. The easy issue. That is why many times when I, if I have a passage that is subject to debate, I give it to you. With the hope that even if the one I told you, I, I explained to you I'm wrong, the Holy Spirit will take the rest and make it known to you. That's my approach. Because what, in the end, what matters is what is the truth. Not what I think, but what is the truth. And the final teacher is God the Holy Spirit. And I am confident that if you go back, look through what we studied, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you more. And I have, I mean, I can testify to that because some of you, when I talk to you, you say things and I just, hmm. I, I mean, I just get amazed what the Holy Spirit has done with some individuals. Anyway, the Greek word also may mean to examine with the view of finding fault. And so it means to judge or call to account, or even to discern, as it is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24 reads, But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. Here, our Greek word anacrino is translated judged. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 25, the word means to question or to examine thoroughly and closely. This is to examine or question 
thoroughly and closely. So this being the case, the concern is that a believer who uh, gets to a, a meat market would question closely the meat that is sold. In effect, the person who does such a thing will want to know the history behind the meat the individual wants to purchase. They want, you know, the children. I want to know. I want, what's the history of this meat? That kind of thing. So the person may want to know if the meat came from pagan temple so that it is meat uh, used in sacrifice to the pagan god. Now such question will be similar to a question a Jew at that time will be engaging in that such a person may want to know if the meat has been associated with pagan worship or if the meat was ritually clean or butchered by a non-Jew. However, the apostle's concern is that a Corinthian believer who goes to the meat market should not bother to examine the history of the meat that is to be purchased as in the phrase when it says without raising questions of conscience. Now that aside, our concern though is really what the apostle meant in the verbal phrase again he said without raising questions of conscience. Now to deal with this phrase, we need to review briefly what we studied in the past regarding the conscience. Now conscience is that inherent mental ability God has given to everyone to discern the difference between right and wrong. Now if nature is such that it encourages an individual to do that which the person recognizes to be right while restraining the individual from doing that which the person recognizes to be wrong. Thus, it can pass judgment of guilt or give reassurance in the case of innocence. Now, because of the nature of the function of the conscience, it is worthwhile at this point to describe it in a little more detail. So, understanding of the function of the conscience should be related to the type of action under consideration. In order to understand conscience, we look at the action that's in view. Now, the conscience may be sequent in act to an action, that is, after an action has taken place. Or it may be antecedent, that is, before the action takes place. Now, if conscience acts in a sequent mode, its primary function is judicial, which can result in acquittal or punishment. Now, as soon as an action takes place, the conscience goes into action to render 
a judgment, favorable or adverse. A, sen- a sentence of guilty or non-guilty. In other words, once you do something, your conscience goes into work immediately. Depending on what you're dealing with, as soon as you do it, your conscience goes into work. Now, it is because of this that some have compared the conscience to a court of law in which there are the culprits, witnesses, and jury. In other words, that's the best way to illustrate. They say, well, look at the conscience, think about the culprit in the, in the court of law. The judge, the witnesses, and jury. But only in this case, the individual himself is all this. In other words, you are the one charged. You are the trial lawyer. You are the jury and the judge. Just you. Because of conscience. Doing all this. So, this play out then inside of you where no one sees it. See, no one sees your conscience. Or my conscience. No one does that. So, if you are innocent, your conscience acquits you. And you have a sense of satisfaction of approval from your conscience. In other words, one of the things that we see, your conscience, once it acquits you, it doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter, you really. I mean, it depends on how much you are too concerned about people. But really, once your conscience acquits you, you have peace. No matter what other people say, you have that peace. That's my point. But if you are guilty, then the punishment phase sets in so that pain and suffering follow. Since the conscience is now an executioner. Now the terror of conscience is really beyond description. The torture of the conscience can go on and on for a long time without relief. Now, to me, this is the reason, or one of the reasons, people confess hidden crimes after such a long time in order to try to free themselves from the pain inflicted by their conscience. Now, some crime is committed. No one knows who did it. But the person who did it knows that. He or she is being tortured by the conscience. And boom, I did it. But you think the person did that? To free their conscience. That, that, there's a power. There's a conviction. There's a torture that's going on without that conscience. And finally, once the person says that, he says that a sense of relief. It doesn't mean that the person is you know, out of the wood. It just he gets a relief. So that's what I mean. That this is the reason people confess after a long time. Anyway, it is true that some people seem to be able to hide the verdict from the conscience. But in, uh, in general, the satisfaction of good conscience may stamp itself on the habitual serenity of one's face. And 
the accusations of an evil conscience may impact a haunted and sinister expression to another. In other words, a lot of time, if you're very really observant when you're talking to people, and they're trying to find out, yes, you try to say, it's not me, but you, it's you. If people watch carefully, there's something about your face that reveals your true state. As I usually say that, well, I mean, if you get offended, that's just your business. Makeup cannot hide it on your face. There's something about it that no matter what you try to do, there's just something in your face that leaves that guilt. You can act and, you know, I mean, I know we know most of us are good actors and actresses. But when the conscience is torturing you, you cannot get out of that. So anyway, what it says is that this means then that the facial expression can most time indicate one's state on guilt or innocence. So anyway, a good illustration of the conscience at work in the, given in the scripture is with Joseph's brothers when they first got to Egypt to purchase grain. Now they did not recognize Joseph as one before them who ordered them to be put in custody for three days. Now during this period, their conscience began to condemn them so that they associated, they applied with their treatment of Joseph about 22 years from the time of their going to Egypt to purchase grain. Now remember these brothers, they went home. Never gave Jacob any inkling that he, they were the one that sold his son. So for over 22 years, they've been going along, carrying that conscience. We did something horrible to our brother. Now, so you can see how the conscience... Now, bear in mind, we're talking about 22 years. See how, as soon as you go into Egypt, that conscience comes back. Now, this is because their conscience condemned them and or inflicted punishment on them that they, they declare what is recorded in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21. Genesis Genesis chapter 42, verse 21. Look at Genesis 42, verse 21. Now they are in jail. They have been put in jail for, uh, for three days. And this is what they say to each other. They say to one another, Surely, we are being punished because of our brother. Now how did they arrive at that? Just think about it for a moment. You see, the power of conscience, 22 years have passed. And they are still going back to what they did. And some of us just say, the people think, because we're living in such a shallow world today, where people don't think, we easily dismiss things. And say, ah, it doesn't matter. Look at that, 22 years in the making. Here it says, surely we are being punished because of our brother. 
we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. Now you see, they, right here we see what is called the spiritual law of sowing and reaping. They saw distress. Now they are under distress. <laughs> they are reaping it. And there is no other way they, can, they have to go back and equate it to what happened to their brother Joseph. He said, but we will not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. You see the point? That if you are guilty of something and you dismiss it easily, when as soon as something thing happens to you, your mind will go there. That thing that you know, you, but you just never admitted it even before God. You keep denying it. So that's what happened here. These brothers, their mind went back to what they did 22 years plus. And so, it is true though that the word conscience did not appear in this passage or in any other passage in the Hebrew scripture. But Joseph's brothers were punished by their conscience for the wrong they did to Joseph. Now you tell me, what could have been more difficult for them to have been going those 22 years? They see the conscience of people who act, act good actors and actresses. If they saw their father mourn and cry for the son. And you know that was eating them up. But they come off like that. Moved it up. Now, he comes home. And that's why they said that. Anyway, so, but you read here, there's no word conscience. The word conscience does not appear in the Hebrew scripture. That is the Old Testament. And you may dispute this because English of English versions have the word conscience in certain Old Testament passages. And one of the things is, you know, thank God for today, what? Googling things. So when I say this, you can pick up a Bible and you Google your maybe King James version or whatever version. And you see the word conscience. Uh-huh. He didn't know what he was talking so I anticipate that, and I go and explain to you, so you know what I'm, I know what I'm talking. Anyway, we don't have, in the Hebrew text, that's why I keep saying, in the Hebrew text, not English, the Hebrew text. Now a good example of this is the use of the word conscience. After David's action regarding the cutting of a portion of Saul's uh, rope, as described in for Samuel chapter 24 verse 5 for Samuel chapter 24 verse 5 first Samuel chapter 24 verse 5 he reads, Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Now we see the word conscience here. He said, but this is Old Testament, so why did he say that? Well, but the truth really is that there is no Hebrew word for conscience. There's no Hebrew word that, that translates 
conscience. But its function though is assigned to the heart. So that the sentence, David was conscience stricken. See, this is the way it reads in the actual Hebrew. If you translate the Hebrew, this is what it reads. The heart of David struck him. That's all he says. See, there's no worse conscience. The heart of David struck him. So that's the sense of struck means brought a condemnation. That's what we say conscience will do when we do certain things. Now, in case of Joseph's brothers and that of David, the conscience pronounced a negative verdict of being guilty. But the conscience can also render a verdict that commends someone, as Apostle Paul indicated, with respect to his conscience and that of his team about their conduct as they related to the Corinthians or Corinthian believers in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12. So what I'm trying to uh, say in this particular case is if your conscience acquits you you, sh- you actually get through peace. Now the world people around you may condemn you. And as I, as I see things read what is going on based on the scripture we should be getting ready for that as believers. Time is coming when we will say this is correct and if all our neighbors say you're wrong and they condemn you. But if your conscience says you're right based on the scripture you should have peace. This is, so that's part of what Paul says here. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom but according to God's grace. So the apostle boasts that his conscience assures him that his life has been ruled by God's grace. Which is a good verdict of the conscience with respect to the past activities of the apostle. So if you do the things that are correct according to the Bible, your conscience tells you, yes, you've done right. Again, the whole world will turn against you. It shouldn't bother you. So anyway, on the one hand then, if the conscience functions after an action, then its function is that of rendering judgment either favorably or adversely. That is, it renders the subjects as either guilty or not guilty. On the other hand, if the action is still contemplated, it hasn't taken place yet, it's still just weighing in what to do. Now the conscience then functions in a different manner. It will still function in a a judicial manner, rendering decision on the right action or decision. But once it does that, another function kicks in within the conscience. 
it becomes obligatory. In other words, when the will stands at the crossroad of decisions or actions, seeing clearly before it the right cause and the wrong cause, the conscience commands to proceed in the one and forbids the other. In other words, you are at the crossroad. You want to, what do I really do? Your conscience says, this is the right way. Now, some people will decide. Hence, are trouble anyway. So, but once that happens, and you say, that's the right way, it becomes obligatory until you defy it, which many of us will do. So then, uh, as soon as that happens, it has shown you the right way to go, then it becomes obligatory on your part. And really, as one writer puts it, and I'm going to quote from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, volumes 1 through 5, page 702. He has this to say, and I quote, and I'm going to quote the whole thing. I'll be making some explanation as I'm quoting it. Quoting, it says, What conscience commands may be apparently against our interests. And it may be completely contrary to our inclinations. In other words, what conscience is telling you is you don't like it. <laughs> That's what it's because it doesn't go it goes against our interests. He said it may be opposed to the advice of friends or to the solicitations of companions. It may contradict the decrees of principalities and powers or the voices of the multitude. In other words, what the guy said, when your conscience is telling you that's the right way, it may contradict what every other person is telling you, including those in authority over you telling you what to do. Continue, he says, yet conscience in no way withdraws or modifies its claim. Now, once your conscience is telling you, it's not going to back out and say, well, it's no longer right. He will still continue to insist. That doesn't mean we will do it. Continue, he says, we may fail to obey, giving way to passion, or being overborne by the allurements of temptation, but when we know what we ought to obey, it is our duty, and this is a sublime and sacred word. The great crisis of life arises when conscience is issuing one command and self-interest or passion or an, uh, authority, or an, authority another. In other words, your conscience is telling you, go this way. Your friend saying, the other way. Or people are even those in authority, the other way. That's what this person is saying. And continue, he says, and the question has to be decided. Which of these two is to be obeyed? End of quote. So the implication is that one may have to set aside prejudice, denounce self-interest, or even disobey an authority that's in conflict with the truth from God. And of course, suffer the consequences 
of such disobedience of a human authority. Now many martyrs in the past have done so. They have been given opportunities to live. Somebody like, I remember somebody like Polycap. 80 years old. Plus. And he was given this opportunity. We revere you as an old man. We'll keep you alive. If you just denounce Christ. And he said, I have known this master for 80 years. He has never failed me. I'm not going to deny him. They kill him. Anyway. So, that's what this is all about. So many martyrs in the past have done so. They have been given the opportunity to live while denying that Jesus Christ is Lord. But their conscience would not permit them to do so. Consequently, they suffered death. And I keep, you will hear it a million times, and I will back out, that one of our weaknesses today in Christendom, especially here in the West, is we put our comfort over truth. That is to say, we, are, we don't want to suffer. We want a Christianity without suffering. And I don't know what Bible you are reading. The Bible we read tells us to be a Christian means you're going to be persecuted. Yet, we don't want that. And that is what we're dealing with, even with conscience. Anyway, our discussion so far, that we can use pain inflicted on us by our conscience to check the correctness of our actions, but we must always be cautious of conscience. Now, this is because conscience is not infallible guide to the correct action to take since it is a function of the truth in the soul. Now, what we're saying is we have to be careful about our conscience because it is what is inside our soul that determines that a whole lot. That is why you can find a whole group of people living under some kind of delusion. Everyone believes that delusion and they think it's, it's true. And so when people do things, it don't bother them because it is accepted. So you must be, that's why I say you have to be uh, conscious of it. Because it all depends on what's in your uh, soul or the norm that you hold. Another reason we must be wary of our conscience is because it can produce dead works. As the writer of Hebrew reminds us in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 reads Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. It reads How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. See, that means you have to be worried of your conscience because of what I just read. See, the clause acts that lead to death is literally from the Greek dead works. Dead works. That refers to works that cannot give eternal life or works. And lead to death. Now, the interpretation of the little phrase dead works 
depends on whether it is concerned with believers or unbelievers. On the one hand, if unbelievers are in view, then the phrase refers to those activities that the individual undertakes with the purpose of pleasing God or being in the right relationship with Him. Whatever that does, it's a dead walk. On the other hand, if believers are in view, then the phrase refers to those activities that a believer does when not under the control of the Holy Spirit. In other words, whatever you and I do and we're not controlled by the Holy Spirit, that's dead works. People may applaud you, but before God, it means not, it's dead. It's of no value, really. So that's what we were referring to. Here though, anyway, in Hebrews 9 verse 14, believers are in view because of the use of the personal pronoun our, our, in this verse. So, the focus of the phrase is sin. Since sin is that which will cause problem for the conscience of a believer that will make it difficult to have fellowship with God. So the implication is that conscience may not always be relied to keep a person from doing what is wrong, although in the context of Hebrews 9.14, the concern is to state that the death of Christ on the cross has the effect of freeing our consciences from the condemnation we experience due to sin. That the death of Christ, once you believe it has that effect of freeing you from feeling that uh, guilt, so to say. Nonetheless, the truth is that our conscience may not keep us from doing what is wrong. And so, we should be careful with what our conscience allows. In other words, just because you are not bothered by what you did, does not mean it is right. That's really what it comes down to. You may not be bothered, but that doesn't mean it's right. It all depends on what's going on inside of you. So with this review then of conscience, we return to consider what the apostle meant in the verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 25. Again, go back, that's what, that's what led us to, you know, that's, those are things I call an occluton in a sense because I didn't immediately go into answering the question and went into something else. Conscience, because that's important. It says, without raising questions of conscience. Now the meaning and or the function of the conscience, as the apostle uses it in a verbal phrase, depends on the phrase or uh, the phrase of conscience. Now literally the Greek reads, because of the conscience. Because of the conscience. So the question is whose conscience? Does the apostle mean? In other words, when he said because of conscience, who's conscience? These are what we need to deal with. Now, well, looking at time, if I get into it, we won't go fast. So we, we just take a break and come back to it. <laughs> 